Welcome to episode seven of Elise's Point podcast. I'm your host, Elise Squirrel, PhD candidate, Canadian mental performance consultant, and sport karate athlete. Each week, I present a monologue of different topics that focus on point sparring aspects of sport karate. I want to stress that although each episode stands alone, this podcast should really be listened to as a whole. This project is meant to be informative, thought-provoking, and cause reflection. Keep in mind that some of the content is based on my observations and experiences from years of training and competing as a competitive athlete in sport karate. This means that it doesn't necessarily pertain or is applicable to every stakeholder within the sport. The overall goal is to promote a safe, healthy, and rational sport structure for future sport karate athletes. So let's start. Episode seven. If I'm good, why do I keep losing? What is quality sport? Some of the best sport games or matches are when the players are evenly matched. But how can you, the spectator, tell? More importantly, how do you, the athlete, know? This episode is more athlete-oriented, and I'm going to be providing a lot of examples from other sports. But keep sport karate in mind and how this can relate to sport karate. What is the best? In a combat sport, it is hard to tell. This is hard in any sport where there is not an objective measure, actually. In combat sport, especially sport karate, it is difficult to judge competence when the performance outcome is subjective. When there is no absolute measure of ability, people start to measure their ability based on the comparison to others. This is a natural human experience, even if you're unaware of it. Which is why we have tournaments and competitions. And when a referee is involved, an external element is added that affects the outcome of the match. Suddenly, someone is judging your competence. And with the result of the match, people who don't know the sport or the athletes can judge the quality of the athlete based on the win or loss of the event. Although wins and losses help and are important in differentiating who was the best on that day, wins and losses suck at determining who is a skilled and an unskilled athlete in the sport. For example, in 2018, Naomi Osaka, a young up-and-comer now regarded as one of the best in tennis, defeated Serena Williams in the first two sets to take the U.S. Open title. This does not make Williams weak. It does not make Williams less of a champion or less skilled, or make her contributions to tennis less important. It means the pool of talent improved and a sign that the game had changed and that the sport had progressed. 
This can be demonstrated in a more objective sport as well. Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympian ever. He still has losses under his belt, and slowly his records are being overtaken. That does not mean that he is unskilled or that his skill is dwindling. I don't even think that it is fair to make any comparisons to him and up-and-coming swimmers now. It means there is more knowledge now than when Phelps first started competing. Remember, art in science. I'm going to be discussing two perspectives. An outsider perspective, which is the perceiver of sport, and an insider perspective, which is the doer of sport. Number one, the outsider perspective. For achievement sports, meaning highly competitive sport with the focus on being the best, sport karate is included under this umbrella. When the outcome is to win, there is the harsh reality that anyone can lose on any given day. That is the nature of sport. In elimination sports, as you get to the top end of the bracket, the matches become more competitive and evenly matched. As a result, it should become more challenging to win. But losing, although it's gut-wrenching, painful, and difficult, does not mean that the loser is unskilled. If the athletes are evenly skilled, there is always more to it. Losing does not make an athlete's past or future achievements less impressive. That one moment should not define an athlete's ability. In sport karate, it is the same premise. Arguably, it takes multiple matches to confirm the better skilled athlete, and even then, there is so much back and forth. We are so lucky as spectators if opponents get to compete against each other more than once during a tournament. If there is a turnover of division winners, it does not mean that the athletes are incompetent. It means the pool of talent is competitive, and that's exciting. Even then, spectators can argue for hours who they think is better than who. It is in my experience that the most skilled athletes group themselves within the top three and five best athletes, because as much as an athlete can believe in their own ability and talent, they respect and recognize that there are other smart and talented competitors out there. And if they are not on the top of their game, even for one day, there is the potential of losing. There are so many instances, especially when it's elimination rounds, where the athletes regarded as the best are knocked out by an underdog because that underdog has been training their strategy for that specific person. Knowing that fighting this person will be an obstacle for them to overcome if they want to win the tournament. We, as sport karate enthusiasts, can all relate to this. It happens quite frequently. And that is because there are more resources athletes can use in preparation for fights. If you are regarded as the best in your sport, you suddenly have a lot more eyes on you. More people studying you. 
Studying one person is a lot more focused than studying every competitor. This is just a smart practice. I'm going to take an example from wrestling. Helen Maroulis is the U.S.'s first American woman wrestler to win gold at the Olympics. However, before the event, she knew that she would have to win against the three-time Olympic champion Saori Yoshida of Japan. Yoshida was a competitor that Maroulis had not beaten in the two and only matches that they had. In order to train to beat Yoshida, Maroulis would have to train and study for this one fight. This meant watching Yoshida's wrestling matches, translating her interviews from Japanese to English to learn how she thought, and polishing the specific weaknesses she had against Yoshida. This was a focus of Marulis for two years, and it ultimately paid off. In amateur sport, it is rare for major athletes from other countries to recurrently compete against each other. Meeting on an international stage two to four years to measure ability against each other provides little feedback on ability. To some extent, it still comes down to who is better and peaking on that day or it comes down to the progression of the sport within that country. However, one person has to lose. The outcome will feel and look awful for one person, but somebody has to lose. It's easy for outsiders of the sport to talk about it like it's not a big deal. But for the insiders of the sport, it's frustrating, confusing, and sometimes devastating. You might be thinking, that's all fine and great, Elise, but right now, there's even less chances to actually measure our abilities as athletes. Because we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we can't compete. You're exactly right. It's going to be a long time before athletes in sport karate can measure their ability against their opponents. And this is where an individual's self-comparison of ability to others gets a little scary. Number two, an insider's perspective. How do you know where your skill ranks in comparison to others in your division? We could use wins and losses again, but what if you haven't competed against the opponent or you haven't competed against them in a long time? What if you haven't competed in a long time? If we don't have the experience to measure our ability, we start to measure our ability in social comparisons and similar types of information that are available to us. These are things athletes see and hear and not necessarily what athletes experience. Right now, much of the information we get from our opponents and teammates are from social media. We live in a world where we have more information available to us than we've ever had before. There is an abundance of information available and sifting through that information to determine what is truthful or how truthful it is, is becoming increasingly difficult. Now there is usually visual proof to provide what appears to be evidence to statements. Although there is much more information available, 
people are getting very good at framing the information they want the outside world to know about. There becomes this art of deception by twisting the truth and convincing others, and sometimes ourselves, that it is real. In the online environment, it is becoming increasingly difficult to tell the difference between truth and deceit. The evidence that is presented through social media can appear to be artifacts of a person's experience and capabilities, despite the elaborate work that is put forth making the post feel increasingly real. Can you relate to this when you view your social media? For better or for worse, the always positive posts that are viewed on the online environment might appraise beliefs in the athlete's own conception of ability especially when there is no way of anchoring ourselves in the real environment surrounding us, that is, put our money where our mouth is, and compete. In regard to social media, the effect can be applicable to both the poster as well as the people viewing the post. Social media creates a separate space where the perceived skills of others are constantly on display. This means that as an athlete in sport karate, You are judging an opponent's ability long before you actually have the opportunity to compete against them in a competition. It could also mean that you start to overestimate, underestimate your own ability, or you overestimate, underestimate your opponent's ability. Scary, right? So, as the pandemic goes on, It could be that social media is allowing athletes to be judged as skilled or unskilled compared to others without actually having to compete against each other. Or it could be that social media is allowing athletes to become promoted based on their social media accounts and not their actual abilities. In both these instances, there is the potential of setting a lot of athletes up for future failure. I would like to end the podcast with the question. How do you judge an athlete's skill? This could be from an outsider of the sport's perspective, for example, a spectator, or an insider of the sport's perspective, for example, yourself as an athlete. Thank you taking the time and listening to Elise's Point. Check in every Monday so you don't miss any episodes. Does this topic resonate with you? Have any thoughts? Anything that came up while you were listening? I would love to hear about them. Please leave a comment on Elise's Point Facebook page. I will talk to you next week. The references to this information are included in the description of this episode. Music by Atch. I would also like to give a shout out to Oliver for letting me share his recording space.